Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Mornings Podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, Jamie Savage of the Leadership Agency tells us why her company is sticking with the four-day workweek, something they've been experimenting with for over a year. York University's Bruce Campbell looks at how rich countries can step up against climate change and looks ahead to next week's climate gathering in Glasgow, Scotland. And Kyla Way from BCAA has their new 2021 Entrepreneurship Survey results. So let's get started. Nice to have you along with us on this frosty Saturday morning, three degrees in downtown Vancouver at 614. I'm Sterling Fox. Uh, let me throw a quote from our next guest uh, on the public airwaves before we ask her what's all about. When our uh, next guest was asked about why her company started a four-day work week over a year ago and has recently decided they're going to stick with the program, here's a quote. This is the future of work. Employees are proven to be just as productive working from home as they are in the office, says the company. And this is an Instagram post, by the way. If someone asked us if our company would ever go back to a five-day work week, the answer is simple. No. And don't ask us again. Jamie Savage is the founder of the leadership agency, the company in question, and the person to whom the quote is attributed. She's joining us now from Toronto. Jamie, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you with us. So what prompted you at the leadership agency to take the decision to go to the four-day work week well over a year ago in the first place? Yeah, so we... um our company is a recruitment agency, yeah. and we recruit exclusively for for tech startups. And as we all know, we were very much impacted, as many companies and many industries were, by the by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You know, our company was essentially in shutdown mode for about three or four months. But then, when you know the the market started to to uptake in in terms of hiring, it was like drinking from a fire hose. Like it, we were so busy, and it was so intense that. You know, and now all of a sudden we're working from home. It made it really tough to shut off and like, you know, close our computers, like literally close our computers and, and not work. And so it was a response to how I was feeling as, a, as, a, as an entrepreneur. I was working, you know, so many extra hours and it was so intense. And I thought to myself, if I'm feeling this way and I'm the owner of the company, mm-hmm. you know, the, the employees must be feeling this way as well. And so I asked my VP of operations at the time, I said, hey, like, how are you feeling? Um, I, I'm feeling tired and overwhelmed. I'm feeling you know, all of these things related to, to work, I said, the team must be, and she said, yes, absolutely. And I said, well, we need to make a change. We need to, we need to change this. We're, we're a startup bootstrap company. If anyone can be agile, it can be us. Sure. And then two days later, we were, we were a four-day work week. Oh, my. Now, on the four-day work week plan, so do you do four tens so that you still total 40 hours to get that minimum threshold, Jamie? Well, you know, some weeks, you know, it could be 40 hours. Some weeks it might be 30. Some weeks it might be 60. We don't ask our employees to track their time. Okay. We've never asked anything in, for, in exchange of this. We've not reduced their salaries and we've not reduced their vacation time. We trust that the job will get done. And some, again, now this is a, and I'm looking at the, the article from which I, I found that quote, uh, and uh, the article talks about you, and in the quote again from the article, in the months since employees have been working for you hours, Jamie, the firm reported its profits had increased without any cuts to compensation or vacation. That's the big bugaboo for a lot of employers considering the four-day work week, Jamie. They're worried about productivity particularly, which of course leads to profits or not. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can see why that would be a concern for, for most companies in some industries. And, you know, for us, it wasn't. And I, I can probably attribute a few things that you made it successful. Like we did double our revenue and we entered, you know, into new markets mm-hmm. since this has happened. So we can only, you know, look at it through the lens of, of our success. But I mean, it doesn't mean that we knew any of that going into it. Like we had no idea what we were in for. This is a, a result of us doing um, you know, things within our own organization to make that happen. So how did you structure it, Jamie? Did you make it so that the company was only open Monday through Thursday? Or did you overlap people so that you were always available to clients five days a week minimum and possibly more? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that we get asked the most because it's quite a tangible execution on, on a new strategy. Right, right so yeah. The way, that, the way that we've structured it is that our team works Monday to Thursday and they're essentially on call on Friday. Like if their clients need them to respond to something, they'll respond, but we don't commit to any deliverables on Fridays. And then the leadership team, um, we, we sort of do the coverage of the Fridays and then we alternate our time. So it's a bit of a, a mixed schedule, but our team, like our employees, they work Monday to Thursday. Interesting. Okay. So now I'm also curious about something else because you said you were making these changes uh, as a result of an incredible bump in business activity. Your firm was ideally mm-hmm. positioned to to deal your recruitment firm for for tech startups. And here's uh, the pandemic comes along. Suddenly everybody's locked down and, and, and yet business, the show must go on. So you're in a position to start connecting dots and you do. So when you get to get to so busy that you were literally over overwhelmed on some days how could you just sort of park that on thursday at five o'clock and say hey we'll get back to you monday morning have a great weekend (laughs) great question um and the truth is it took a while for us to iron out some of the details it took about three months i would say um so going into january of 2021 for us to have it really you know worked out the way that it needed to be so one is you know we needed to lead by example so the leadership team at the leadership agency needed to actually do the work so that the employees could see that it was safe to take that time off. And two, we needed to make sure that we implemented some really effective communication strategies and time management strategies. So we leverage new technology. We've all gone through communication training. We've all gone through time management training. So mm. it was a work in progress and it wasn't something that you could just like turn the switch on or off. It, it took a, it took a while for us to, really hit our stride in terms of how we were going to position this in the marketplace with our stakeholders. Yeah, and that would be a good takeaway for anybody listening right now too, wouldn't it, Jamie? This is, even though uh, the decision is is favorable, both from an employer perspective and perhaps the directors are on side already, and certainly the employees won't be hard. You won't have to do much arm twisting to get them to go on the four-day work week. But if, if you're going to roll into that, it's not going to be seamless. There are going to be moments of awkwardness as schedules get condensed and moved around and and people's assignments get perhaps jigged a little differently so it it is something that's going to take time it's not you can't stop on a friday and come back next monday and we're now a four-day workweek company period Exactly. I couldn't agree more with that statement. <laughs> so what are the what are the big things then if you're going if your company, as particularly a small company, I mean it's easy if you're chorus radio or somebody like my company, uh, you know, thousands of employees, national company, blah blah blah. But what if you're a small company, you're considering this with a limited number of employees? What are the pitfalls to to really be aware of, Jamie, going in so that you get it right as best you can? Yeah, so my suggestion is that 
you know, if we are, like I said, we're a small bootstrap startup. We're women-led, we're women-founded, and I think that, you know, we get asked all the time, you know, how did you guys know how to do this? Yeah. Like, what, what encouraged you? What inspired you? And, you know, after we had done it, there was a lot of, there was a narrative, there was a tr- talk track out there about how there other countries were doing it, other companies, but that wasn't even available to us when we did it. We just did it. So if we can do it, so can you. Sure. And, you know, I think that the more small businesses and the more entrepreneurs out there start to share this type of information, the louder our voices get and, and are heard in the community of small business. And so my suggestion is to start off slowly and start off with um, a framework in mind and work towards it. So, like, we just did it. We all of a sudden were a four-day work week, and we worked at the kinks as we went, and it was really successful for us. But it doesn't have to be that way. Right. You, know, you can start off with a rotation-type schedule, um, and really, you know, try it for your organization. Um, so the tips I have are um, communicate and then over-communicate. So your employees need to know exactly what is expected of them. Two, um, make sure that you have the right leadership team or the right leaders in place because they need to know how to communicate to their, their team members. And three, you have to lead by example. Like I said earlier, if your team sees you working on that Friday, so to speak, in our case, um, they're not going to feel safe in taking the Friday off. So right. you have to rework your mindset and actually apply it um, and lead by example. And the fourth, I will say, and close off with is um, you can't expect anything in return. And in our opinion, this is what's really worked. Because we didn't, like I said, reduce their salaries or um, reduce their vacation time. And, and of course, I'm sure when the concept was proposed to many staff, I mean, who in their right mind is going to say, you know, a three-day weekend, I just, I, it's, I can't wrap my head around it. Of course they're going to go, yes. But there, was, there, there were some legitimate concerns uh, that went along with it, too. And, and I, I take your point, particularly, Jamie, about if managers are working on the supposed day off, um, then... Uh, we're and we're not because it's a day off and yet they're still working um do they actually have expectations of us to kind of oh what the heck we'll jump in as well and and so much for the four-day work week Mm -hmm. yeah absolutely it's you know and it's something that is always going to be a work in progress and i think that you know yes it it was a very well received concept and idea when we proposed it of course you know a three-day weekend and in cases where we have long weekends it's a four-day weekend sure but it, there is fear. Like, at the end of the day, it's a change, right? So we respond to change as humans, and, you know, we can't differentiate the difference between good and bad stress. It, it's, it's a good stress. It's a good problem to have. But in their minds, it's like, well, how are we going to get the job done in four days? Like, mm-hmm. this doesn't make any sense. But, you know, like I said, we, we had to invest and get really intentional about how we were going to help them get the job done in those four days. And then I think once they saw that come to fruition and saw it actually um, be quite successful. I think that's when, you know, there was a an additional response, um, you know, positive positive response to to the proposal. Only a few seconds left here, Jamie. So I guess the big takeaway is if you're going to do this, for goodness sake, do it. Don't do it half measured. Uh, do your homework first. Make sure everyone is on side. So at least going in, everyone is on the same page with it in terms of understanding what the objective is. Right. Absolutely. And so the more the more you can the more prepared you are and this is this goes to most most business decisions but the more prepared you are to execute a new plan the more likely that plan is to be successful. Yes. So this is the future of work that was the quote we started off with you're still convinced it is too I can tell.
<laughs> Absolutely. So, Jamie, thanks very much for this. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. We wish you at the Leadership Agency continuing success with your four-day work week. And uh, many of us already going, you know, I could uh, I could live with three-day weekends permanently myself. Thanks for putting a, a bug in a few ears this morning, too, Jamie. We appreciate it. Sterling Fox with you on this cool Saturday morning. Cool, but clear. Clear skies and lots of sunshine, as John mentioned moments ago. That's the big forecast for Saturday after lots and lots of rain. Yes, I have a date with a rake, and I'll bet you do too. Bruce Campbell is about to join us. Professor Campbell from the Department of Environmental Studies at York University has written a piece at theconversation.com about COP26. Yes, the G20 meetings are currently underway in Rome, and most of the leaders, including Prime Minister Trudeau, and President Biden will go from Rome to Glasgow, Scotland for the big COP20 climate meetings. We'll talk more about that in detail next half hour. But as far as where our next guest is concerned, here's the title of his most recent contribution. COP26, four ways rich nations can keep promises to curb emissions and fund climate adaptation. Professor Bruce Campbell, good morning and welcome back to the show, sir. Good morning to you, Sterling. It's good to have you with us, Bruce. Welcome back. Uh, let's talk a little Thank bit you. about COP26. And we are, of course, rich nations compared to most of the rest of the world. What are, you, what, what are the expectations of rich nations, Bruce, versus what they've committed to so far? Yeah, I mean, the, what I basically wrote the uh, commentary was to, was its theme was what, what rich nations all the poor nations and what they should do in terms of, of poning up. Right. Uh, and they have committed uh, back in 2009 at Copenhagen, they committed to reaching uh, $200 billion per year, and uh, they still haven't reached that record. And, you know, Canada, even by that standard, is a laggard. Uh, and even, even uh, by... Uh, it, well, they're committing to, to do it by 2023, but this is kind of delay uh, and dilute has been has been the message. And I just want to want to give you a sense of why they owe poor nations uh, this a number of things, but including this. Okay. Um, uh, well, Canada is one of the top ten carbon emissions uh, emitters. Uh, and it's continued to increase emissions even since the Trudeau government came to power. One of the only, uh, the only G7 nation to continue to do that. But let me give you an example. Compare, compare it with, uh, with poor nations. And, and as I wrote, 90% of heat waves death have occurred in poor and middle income, uh, nations. Uh, they, they account for just a tiny fraction of of carbon uh, emissions, and there's huge numbers that are displaced every year by uh, by by what's going on now. I mean, the future the future is now. You take, for example, Mali, which is um, and compare it to Canada. Mali is one of the poorest, and it's been devastated by climate, and it ranked near the bottom on the Human Development Index, which is a uh, an index of basically richness and uh, standard of living. And Canada ranks 16th, um, Mali 184. Mm -hmm. Its annual, its its carbon footprint was uh, Mali's carbon 
footprint was was the third lowest, and Canada's footprint was among the highest, 170, uh, uh, 170 from the bottom. So it, it just gives you a sense of the inequity uh, in carbon emissions. Uh, Professor Campbell, I was wondering what you know about this $100 billion number that's being thrown around by many of the leaders and many of the preliminary discussions that are going on already before COP26 officially kicks in tomorrow. What's this new $100 billion number about? Or is that a reduction from the original target of 200 to a more achievable 100 in a shorter time frame? No, I think I think what they've done is just delayed the 200 to, uh, to 2023. Okay. Uh, I think there's a lot of cynicism and disappointment uh, uh, amongst the lower income uh, countries. I I think um, they also haven't done anything about uh, tax havens, and I've talked about tax havens, and the reason that that's that's a big thing, especially for poor countries. It's it's for poor and and wealthy countries as well. It's a problem, but for for poor countries, um, it's uh, it's it's equivalent. It's been estimated by the Tax Justice Network, but that it takes uh, by multinational corporations moving their profits to tax havens. It's equivalent of um, uh, about. 50% of their health care budgets, and they're fiscally strained as it is. Their fiscal capacity is much lower than rich companies, than rich countries. countries yeah. it's, just, it's just one more factor that, that, that the rich countries, there's been, you know, promises. We've seen the, uh, the revelations most recently by the Pandora Papers, mm-hmm. but, but there has been no action. There's been very little action on on reducing uh, uh, the ability of corporations and rich people to move their uh, assets and incomes to poor, uh, to tax havens. So the practice of, of uh, moving cash uh, offshore to safe tax havens, tax avoidance, basically, Bruce, is what it boils down to. That practice... Both, both of them. Yeah. Both of avoidance and evasion. Right. So, but that practice, that that whole uh, approach, co- costs uh, tax revenues to various countries in the billions every year. Yeah, uh, I think the Canada Revenue Agency estimated that Canada loses three billion a year. Uh, that's that's uh, siphoned offshore. So apparently now there is some uh, at least lip service being paid to Canada Revenue Agency being given a few more teeth to start going after yeah. some of these offshore tax havens. Bruce, I wanted to come back to a point that you make in the article uh, at, at the conversation.com, friends. I'll give you the title in a minute. Uh, it, it's about Canada, about Canada's emission. You say Canada is historically the 10th largest carbon emitter and the yeah. worst contributor to carbon emissions on a per capita basis and that's what i want to catch you up on bruce because a lot of canadians go look yes we we do uh we do we are a a developed economy and we do have manufacturing and we do have emissions but our emissions relative to emissions from uh the other members of the g20 certainly are negligible so why is canada taking it upon itself to be the role model for the rest of the world it's they're they're not uh negligible uh, they're the 10th highest overall. 
So it's not negligible. And as I said, uh, uh, as I wrote, on a per capita basis, uh, they're the highest, although, you know, depending on the calculation, uh, they can be second. Uh, but this figure and this assessment was done by something called the Overseas Development Institute. Mm-hmm. It's a public agency, uh, and it was commissioned by the UK government uh, to make this assessment uh, in advance of, of Glasgow. Interesting. Bruce, I'm, I'm, I'm almost out of time here. I, I, I want to I boil it down to your expectations going into COP26 next week. What are you, are you optimistic that this, this confab is going to produce something positive? Well, you know, hope springs eternal. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, and I, I want to hope uh, and I want to be surprised. And we've got... Uh, you know, lots of commitments, but as uh, uh, Greta Thunberg said, we don't want any more blah, blah, blah. We want action. And that's, that, that will be the test, if there's real action. All right, Bruce, great to have you back on the show. Thanks for joining us again this weekend. We should do okay. a postmortem in a few weeks to see what actually did happen and what your take on the outcome is. You good for that? Sure, absolutely. All right, we'll get in touch with you in a few weeks. Thanks, Bruce. Good to have okay. you back with us today. It is a lovely Saturday morning on the west coast of Canada. A little bit of sunshine up there, a little cool. I had to scrape the windshield on the car. It wasn't late for work, but I was a little later getting here than I expected to be. I was told last night, you know, you should probably allow a little extra time. We park our vehicles outdoors uh, because, uh, you know, you may have to scrape the windshield. I said, oh, come on. It's October. You don't have to scrape windshields in October in Vancouver. Guess who was scraping the windshield at 10 after 5 this morning in front of his house? (laughs) Yours truly. So, so it's warming up nicely. It's going to be two. It's going down to two again tonight. But for here's the good news. For trick-or-treating tomorrow evening, around supper time on Sunday, it'll be dry and about five or six degrees. Ideal conditions. A pleasure to say good morning to our next guest. She is Kyla Way, a senior manager with BCAA, here to talk about their entrepreneurship survey 2021. Kyla, good morning and welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you with us. Now, here's an interesting finding. More than three quarters of young employed British Columbians between ages of 18 and 34 say they're willing to leave jobs they dislike coming out of the pandemic. This isn't the first time we've heard this, Kyla. Why is there such a a strong desire among younger workers to move on from their current positions? Well, um, we launched small business insurance a few months ago, and we've been having British Columbians reach out to us to protect their existing business. Mm -hmm. But then we started seeing a lot of new ventures, so we wanted to see what the appetite was for entrepreneurship. And like you said, we we found it quite interesting to see that high stat. And we found British Columbians are taking stock, and they are changing jobs, which we've seen a lot in the headlines, Mm -hmm. and considering entrepreneurship. Well, it is interesting now. Uh, is Has some of this come out of simply being disconnected from the workplace and working from home, thereby permitting a different uh, impression in your mind of what work is all about? 
Yeah, I think that has a lot to do with it. Like the survey indicates at this point in the pandemic, people are reevaluating. They're open to trying new things and taking risks, especially in their professional lives. And, you know, I think it's exciting to hear British Columbians taking the leap and and wanting to follow their passion and start their own business. You know, um, entrepreneurship is the driver to our economy in this province. Sure. And, And the survey does indicate that in no small way, that in terms of appreciating the notion that small business is critical to the economy and to our recovery. You're talking 88% of British Columbians saying you're darn tootin' it is. Yeah, and they're believing that even more so now. I think um, we've learned that from the pandemic. And the interesting thing is, um, you know, we found 80% plan to support small business from diverse backgrounds and cultures more than ever. And, you know, we really want to make sure that we invest in the future of entrepreneurship in BC. And, you know, the BD School of Business at Simon Fraser University has this great program, the RADIUS program. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, they're a leading social innovation and entrepreneurship in incubator and they work with existing and emerging young BIPOC entrepreneurs to develop and accelerate um, good ideas. So we've made a donation to help support their programs for the next few years. A donation of $25,000. You should put, you should throw the dollar figure out there, Kyla. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's a pretty significant pop, you know. Yeah, you know, we really always want to support the community and, and be involved in more purpose-driven organizations. So this is a perfect partnership for us. So let's talk about small businesses and this kind of startups because you, your new product at BCAA uh, is small business insurance. Uh, so clearly you've sensed a, a growing need, a growing element of the population that is going to avail themselves of this product. So talk to us about the people in small businesses that are approaching you for insurance information. Yeah, you know, we launched it because we found um, a a lot of British Columbians' uh, needs for small business insurance weren't being met. There was a big gap between small and larger businesses. And then we also found our customers were requesting it. So since launching, we've seen such a variety and a a wide range. So everything from the comic book store Mm -hmm. down the street to home organization and decluttering services. And again, some of these businesses represent um, uh, areas of activity that prior to the pandemic almost didn't exist. Yeah, I could use the home decluttering. We're spending a lot more time at home. <laughs> That's right. And of course, uh, again, this is are these uh, individual entrepreneurial activities or do they typically represent a small pool of individuals? Well, you know, we classify, um, and in our survey we did as well, as, you know, starting your own business. So uh, that's a big category. And then an entrepreneurial side hustle. So that's in in addition to your full-time job. Mm -hmm. So something like home organization and decluttering services, you could do outside of the traditional nine-to-five. Ah, so now is that the way that, and and typically that in the past, Kyla, has been the way some small businesses have started. Well, we're not entirely sure that we can take the plunge full time into this, so we're going to kind of ease into it uh, during our spare time or off hours and see how it goes. And if it floats, we go with it. And if it doesn't, well, no major harm, no, no major loss. 
Yeah, like a side hustle is a great way to earn that extra money for that mortgage and uh, test the entrepreneurial waters and see if your idea is going to float or sink. Is there any place in the province? Now, clearly there would be more activity here in the province's largest city and over in Victoria, but are there hotbeds of, of entrepreneurial activity elsewhere in BC that you're hearing from and perhaps getting surprised by? No, um, I, no, I can't speak to that. We didn't dive into that into um, into the survey, but um, we're seeing that appetite for entrepreneurship is is strong throughout the whole province. Indeed. So, in terms of government support for uh, entrepreneurs, uh, at a time when governments are still majorly preoccupied with providing benefits to people who have fallen between the cracks and and whose uh, support during the COVID uh, protocols has been critical. So. I think it's safe to say these days you're not going to be able to rely on government uh, in terms of financial support or, or, or that sort of thing if you're an entrepreneur and, and determined to, to establish your own business. You're pretty much on your own, aren't you? Well, you know what? Starting and running a business does have its risks, and we recommend everyone does their research ahead of time and use all the resources available. You know, Small Business BC partners with the provincial government, and they're a great educational resource uh-huh. to get started. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about small business insurance, since that's the newest product you have. Is it the law that a small business or any entrepreneurship must carry insurance, or is that a decision of the individual enterprise? Well, um, we have a team of small business uh, insurance advisors who review all the the company's details because every business is unique. Some have clients, some don't. So there's a lot of variables at play. So that's why we have that team of experts to provide that customized advice. And we also have the online tool that asks you specific questions to narrow in what you need. And a lot of businesses consider insurance almost as, as an option. Well, you know, we're too small. Uh, we don't want to, you know, we can't afford that. That's, that bites into our overhead, et cetera, et cetera. It really isn't, relatively speaking, terribly expensive and can be a, a, a game breaker, can't it? Well, yeah, like the smaller the the business, the bigger an impact any setback would have, right? So it, it's something that we recommend uh, business owners take a look at the current protection they have in place, um, make sure they have the coverage they need, and um, if they don't um, or they're starting a new venture, to look into small business insurance to make sure their business is covered so they can focus on growing it, What the, and that's what really matters. Overall, the tone of the survey, you had it done by uh, inside. West uh, recently. Was the tone of response positive overall? Optimistic? Yeah, yeah, it was. Like, we were really happy to see that the appetite was what we thought. It's strong for entrepreneurship. And like I mentioned before, we're excited to see um, the, you know, the motivation to start a new business and try a side hustle. And like I said, that's what's going to keep our economy going as we move forward out of this pandemic. And we just got to find those people and support them all we can. Kyla Way, thanks very much for doing this this morning. Uh, The survey, friends, is available at BCAA's website, BCAA. Kyla, thank you. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live 6 to 9 weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week.
Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.